and welcome to the podcast crossover. Dark podcasts of forbidden love. <laughs> Insert lightning bolt dot mp3 sound effect here. <laughs> and sadly, I know how that's how that's how the show's going out. Uh, all right, folks, <laughs> this, welcome back. This is the seventh episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shang. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. Together, we're known as the Pied Pipers of the Man Children, and we're proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Shag. I have fallen in love with oh. this comic. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Rob, that's a good topic, because isn't it all about love? This one, this whole month on the network and this particular comic is all about love. We are talking about DC Special, Blue Ribbon Digest number 20, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love, which is dun, dun, dun. very exciting. Probably the most expensive DC Digest out there. I think you paid, <laughs> what, about $1,000 for your copy? All right, so what happened here is Rob, Rob decided he wanted to do a Digest Cash show, right? And I just stepped in and sort of took over and said, okay, great, we're doing totally this. And you're true. like, oh, no, exactly what? exactly what happened, everybody. Right. So I then went on a buying spree, right? And I saw that Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love was like hard to find. I'm like, huh, that's really weird. And it must be really kind of rare and stuff. So fine, I, I decided, you know, it is so unique, I have to own it. So I paid the whopping sum of $25 for this Digest. I'm not sure I have ever paid that amount of money for a single issue of a comic book, actually. Uh, I'm pretty cheap. So e- even my old Aquamans from the 60s I bought back in the day when no one cared. And those, I don't think any of those cost me $25. So I paid $25 for this thing. And I was so excited. I thought I got it at a great price because all the other eBay prices were even higher. And I mentioned it online and suddenly I get messages from Michael Bailey and everyone and their brother going, oh yeah, I paid $3 for that last week. <laughs> I'm like, oh, son of a biscuit. Oh my gosh. So yes, this is the most expensive digest, possibly the most expensive comic I own, so I was sure as hell going to make sure we do an episode on this thing. <laughs> and yet it was it is, my pick. It is your pick, yes, but it is pretty awesome. I do love that we've tied this into October. It's a great month for this kind of thing, because it's not just a romance comic, folks. This is like dark and creepy gothic romance. So uh, super fun, you know, kind of dark shadows kind of stuff, and uh, a lot of fun. And it, it's so much fun, it even inspired this crossover, the dark podcast of Forbidden Love, going on across through many of the podcasts in the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob, you want to rattle off some of the names of the shows that are participating? Uh, well, of course, we have uh, the House of Frankenstein, which is part of the Supermates podcast. We have that going on. Uh, it's Midnight. The Podcasting Hour is going to be doing something on it. The Romance Podcast uh, Comics Theater Podcast Show thing with all the different names. That's, uh, that's Lonely good. Hearts, perhaps, would be the Lonely Hearts, maybe, maybe that's it. Yeah, Lonely Hearts. Uh, t- t- tough, uh, tough Like a Girl, I believe, is going to be doing something as well. It's, we got a bunch of different people involved this month. And, and there's more. Um, you know, we've got, uh, I'll just write a lot of some of those that are, there. again, we're not holding anyone to this. These are, at this point, people are hoping to participate. Uh, Film and Water, I don't know who those people are, but they're apparently part of the network. Uh, they don't talk to me. They don't send me messages. Uh, Mirror Factory, Plastic Ass, and of course this episode of Digest Cast. All these folks are hoping to be part of the crossover. So lots of fun, and be sure to look for those shows. Or if you get our all-in-one feed, then you're going to get all of them. Awesome. So I did want to talk for a second because I bought some more Digest-related stuff recently. Uh, I was in Portland hanging out with Nicholas Prom from Comic Reflections and came across in this great comic shop I love called Cosmic Monkey. They had a ton of Digests. And I went through and tried to find ones I didn't have that kind of jumped out at me. I got the Super Friends one. It has got that gorgeous, gorgeous cover. And who did this cover, Rob? 
Uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Wait, really? The, the Super the, Friends one? The painted one? I thought this was Alex Toth. I, I, clearly, I, no, was, no, no, I was setting something up, and I didn't know what I was talking wait, about. Wait, hold okay. on. Wait, well, hold on. Wait, 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 you're talking about the Digest cover. Yes, Digest. Digest. Oh, you're right. Alex Toth did the Treasury, didn't he? Yes. This is Jose Luis, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, uh, Robert Smith, and Joe Orlando. I'm so sorry. You're absolutely okay, right. There we go. All right. It's here, got here, Superman here, sitting here, in a chair yeah. reading comics to all the super friends. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Yes, it's very charming. It's a be- In fact, I, I want to say one of our listeners, maybe Sean, I think, uses this as his wallpaper on one of his uh, machines, I think. If I, I could have that wrong. I'm really good at being wrong tonight. Anyway, he loves that um, comic. Sean Myers loves that comic. Yeah. So I picked that one up. I was very excited about that. I also picked up some – and these aren't technically digest, but they're really cool. These um, comic novels, paperback comics they called them. They're like novel size, but they would basically reprint a comic in black and white form. I picked up the Green Lantern, Green Arrow one, the, which is the Hard Traveling Heroes. And I picked the un, uh, picked up Uncanny X-Men, which covers several issues of Uncanny X-Men. And uh, just – I love these things so much. And then um, – no, not at Cosmic Monkey. I also got some other digests recently. I got the second or first, whichever one. I got the, the Archie superhero digest I was missing because you had told me one day that there's two of these things, right? Yes. yes. So I now own both of them. I own the first one, which is called Captain Hero Comics Digest Magazine, which has got Jughead as a superhero punching someone on the cover. And the next one is uh, the Red Circle uh, superheroes. So I've got both of those Archie digests, and I would like to get that on the docket sometime soon if we could. I think that would be fun. Oh, there's some amazing artwork in those books. Really? Oh, okay. I can't wait to see it. Neil Adams, Gray Morrow, really cool stuff. Seriously? Oh, jeez. Okay. Super cool. And then, uh, of course, now these aren't recent acquisitions, but also just in my stack of fun things to do on Digest Cast someday. I got a couple of Spider-Man Digests. I got a Transformers Digest that's burning a hole in my stack here that I want to cover, and I'm not kidding. So, no, no response from you on that one? Yeah, I'm going to be busy that month. Uh-uh, I got, I got plans. I got plans, folks. <laughs> I will and, pay Derek William Crabb to step in for me. Oh, my gosh. Well, since we are talking about large stacks of digest, there's something that we talked about last episode that we should be talking about again, don't you think? Yes, we have, we, uh, have the winners of our contest. We're going to announce them at the end of the show, but our contest was you had to write in and explain like what your favorite digest was, why you love the digest, and leave a comment on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we got a bunch of really great entries, and we have two winners of this contest. That's right. We originally only intended to do one because Rob had a, st- a great fat stack of digest. Then our buddy Rob Lance from Comic Connection in Oakville, Ontario, sent us a box of more digests. So, which is amazing. Thank you so much to Rob for that. It's like, oh my gosh. So we gonna have we've got enough that we've got to do two winners because there again there's there were so many great entries. So that's awesome. So excited to be doing that contest. Yes, one winner will be getting a box of digests from Shag, and one winner will be getting a box of digests from me. My box is more fun than your box, but that's. And there's not that's not a euphemism. But anyway, um, now I realize this isn't a digest, but I've got to mention it since we're doing Halloween and everything. DC Comics, you know, they're doing these hundred page giants that they're doing a, in, in Walmart. I know that place you love to go. Um, and they have just released a Halloween special with Swamp Thing. It's got Blue Devil in it too, and all kinds of characters. Uh, it looks super cool. I, I actually went to Walmart recently because we didn't have any power, uh, and I needed to buy things. Um, we had a little thing called Hurricane Michael blow through my house recently, and uh, that's what I call Michael Bailey. That's funny. <laughs> So we went to Walmart to just get supplies, and I found the DC Comics stack, and there was only one copy of the Halloween one left, so I snatched it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited to, get, to dig into it. Can't wait. So it's, it's not quite a digest from DC, but it's, you know, it's as close as they're going to get right now, so it's pretty exciting. 
It looked really cool. Yeah, I saw the picture of it, the cover. It looks terrific. I mean, all those all those uh, those collections look really cool. They do. I, I don't know how long DC is going to do them because I'm not sure Walmart's really retailing them uh, in a smart way. But well, you know, we'll have to see. So. Yeah, we've been hearing stories. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, and you know, sooner or later, we're going to have to get back around to doing the uh, new Marvel Digest as well. We've got a couple stacked up. We've got a Thanos one, a Ant Man and Wasp one, and a Venom one that I know you're excited to read. Yeah. Well. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Well, we've uh, we've talked about a lot of different things, but one thing we really need to do, folks, is we need to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So what you got, buddy? Well, one of the stories in this book is drawn by the great Alex Toth. Everyone mm-hmm. listening to this knows who Alex Toth is. Luckily, a lot of his work has been collected over the years, but there's a book here called Genius Illustrated. The Life and Art of Alex Toth, hardcover, volume two. This guy's had two <laughs> collections of these books. And um, this collects a bunch of his work, a lot of late, latter-day stuff from Warren, DC, Red Circle, Marvel, and some creator-owned properties. It reprints two complete stories, Burma Skies and White Devil, Yellow Devil, plus like a biography of Toth and sort of the later years of his life. It's written by Dean Mullaney and Bruce Canwell. And, of course, it's just chock-a-block with great Alex Toth artwork because there is no other kind. It's 200, 288 pages. Normal price $49.99. In stock trades price $34.99. That is 30% off. I mean, look, I, I, I would almost say, like, don't let the title dissuade you. Genius Illustrated. That sounds intimidating, and it almost sounds a little bit like a textbook. It is. This is just a book of beautiful Alex Toth artwork, and there is nothing more beautiful to look at than Alex Toth artwork. I mean, there's there's a book of just his like uh, character designs for Hanna Barbera <laughs> stuff stuff that stuff that was never meant for the public to see, but they collected that in a book. I mean, that's how beautiful this stuff is. So, Genius Illustrated: Life and Art of Alex Toth, Volume Two. Can't beat it. Yeah, every time he gets mentioned, I have to bring up uh, where my where my I think I found my love for Alex Toth was in those old uh, Zorro collections. Uh, oh, he used to do, he used to draw the Zorro comic for Disney back in like the fifties or sixties or something, whatever. And um, it's simply that? stunning work. Yeah, I think yeah. It's the fifties. Yeah. And it's, it's been collected by a couple of different folks. And, oh, man, it's beautiful. So, okay. Well, my pick is uh, I was trying to find like a romance kind of theme. So I found another classic illustrator, Wally Wood Torrid Romances hardcover. Super fun. Now, I cannot vouch for this myself. I haven't read it, but it sounds super great. Uh, it's by Vanguard. They do these Wally Wood classic series. They follow uh, best, you know, Wally Wood stuff. And uh, it's collected a whole bunch of Golden Age Wally Wood romance stuff. And uh, it's, oh, gosh, let's see. It's 176 pages. It's full color. Normal retails for $39.95, but you get it 50% off, so it's only $19.97. Think about that. 19, you know, 20 bucks for 176 pages of Wally Wood doing romance stuff, and uh, it, it's got to be strange and wild, because it comes from strange worlds and eerie crime and horror. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's in that kind of vein. So you should definitely check this out. It's out there on In Stock Trades, and uh, it sounds freaking awesome. I would love to see this, because I love Wally Wood stuff. So, oh, yeah. Awesome. So for these and all your other uh, trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Well, Rob, you picked the Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the Digest itself? Uh, yeah, that I did. It's cover dated April 1982. It was released January 7th, 1982. The Digest editor was Laurie Sutton, my friend Laurie Sutton, who's a great writer. I've interviewed her on the Aquaman Shrine. Um, I, I didn't have a chance to ask Laurie anything extensive about working on this, although I did – 
managed to get like one question in and she said to admit it like she did not remember much about doing this which there's no reason why she should this book is 35 years old <laughs> it was it was you know it was just one of the many editorial jobs that she had at DC so i mean you know it's it's significant to us but to her it was just like get another book to get out so she didn't remember anything that's particularly distinctive about it it's 95 cents for 100 pages it features an original cover by joe orlando and it reprints three stories uh, to wed the devil um, from sinister house of secret love number two say that five times fast bride of the falcon from sinister house of secret love number three and a Madame Xanadu story, which is basically untitled, just called Madame Xanadu. That's from uh, Doorway to Nightmare number one. Now, that story, they, we're not going to cover that one because Ryan Daly did such a great job on it over on his show. It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, episode number 14. So if you want to get into an in-depth discussion of that story, go over there to the show because it's it's not really a Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love story. I think it's DC was hedging its bets a little of like, well – we have these two very uncommercial stories. We have to throw something in here that's kind of DCU related. <laughs> so they they stuck in the Madame Zandu story as good as it is. Uh, but but so that's that. But we're going to be covering about the the two romance stories. And part of the reason that I wanted to do this one, it's just I'm so charmed by it because it's so uncommercial. Right. I mean, just no comic book fan in 1982 was clamoring for reprints of the gothic romance line. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was doing that. Girls had pretty much abandoned the comic book, you know, comic books at that point for the most part. And I have to think this was either Joe Orlando or somebody. This was just somebody at DC was like, you know what? That stuff's really cool. Let's reprint some of that stuff. And I know we won't sell five copies of this damn thing, but let's do it anyway. And ne- next month we'll do Teen Titans, you know. But I appreciate appreciated that for one month they really dipped deep into their archives because I think probably in 1982 most people didn't even know that DC ever did gothic romance comics you know it's just it, they came and went so fast I got to think someone was sitting around who was a Dark Shadows fan who was thinking you know what Dark Shadows has kind of got a got a life in syndication at this point and and that's what inspired them to do this I don't know and we're gonna have a because we did pose that question before Chris Franklin does come in later in the feedback and gives us some good thoughts on that so I'll save that but I, I again it just if Dark Mansions the way it's written looks like Dark Shadows and all that now it, here's one thing that's kind of odd to me is that the the two issues that are reprinted in here, excluding the Madame Xanadu story, both come sinister come from Sinister House of Secret Love, right? Well, that series and Dark Mansion, there was a series called Dark Mansion, singular, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love. Both were ongoing titles, DC published, at the exact same time. Uh, they were both published in 1971 and 1972. Each only lasted four issues. But it's just odd that they didn't. The, the stories they chose were from, were from the Sinister House series instead of the Dark Mansion series. It seems like if you're going to call it Dark Mansion, why not pick stories from that title? That is a little unusual. You would think that uh, you would you would call it Sinister House because that does have a little more of a kind of a mystery type sound. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these digests were chosen based on page length. And, of course, the artists, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they were like, well, we can get an Alex Toth story in here. That's right. exciting. So I think that had probably something to do with it, too. But, like, I love on the top of the cover, it says, 100 pages of stirring gothic romance. And it's like, that's just telling young boys, don't pick this up. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> well, you know, maybe, you know what, there you go. Maybe they thought, since these were sold in grocery stores, right, at that point? Yeah, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, maybe they thought they could get the girl market back. 
by you know because it's a different place. They you know they they're not looking at the convenience stores. They're in a different you know maybe maybe I would be I would die to know how many copies this sold and then how many it sold relative to the digest that came in before it. You know that right. would be fascinating to know. Well, uh, just finishing up that previous thought about the secret and sinister house thing, I still think that they chose this title because it's, it's similar to Dark Shadows, is what I'm thinking. But um, interestingly enough, I, I didn't even know this until I was doing research for this episode. In 2016, there was a miniseries entitled Dead Man, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, which is crazy. And it's actually out there in stock trades. You can get it. So uh, if you're a Dead Man fan and you like gothic romance, you got to check it out. Dead Man. Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, and it's just yeah. You know, obviously, it was they were you know trying to do something with this title because people would remember it. So super. It fun. reminds me of that uh, that two page spread and the one DC sampler that was the mm-hmm. Legion of Superheroes, where every panel was was uh, using a logo from their old history. It was like police comics, action comics, and yeah. I just was so charmed that like DC still had all those logos sitting as stats somewhere in a folder. <laughs> I just thought that was just very charming. Well, um, you want to get into this? You want to describe the cover for everybody? Yeah, the like you said, the cover's by Joe Orlando, and it's a collage cover. It features uh, a couple embracing, which are clearly meant to be the couple from the um, one of the stories, and then there's a, there's a, a full body shot of the other, of another couple, and they're supposed to be from the from the Falcon story. And then in the background, there's a mansion. It's not terribly mysterious. Uh, in fact, it's not really really mysterious at all. It's cover it's colored in bright red, so it really looks more like a, a romance comic than a mystery comic. But you know, otherwise, it's Joe Orlando, who wasn't drawing a whole lot in 1981. He was mostly an editor at that point. So it was nice to see him come back and do something fun like this. It seemed like a nice little, you know, fun thing for him to do. Again, I, a lot of these guys, these older guys, they weren't that enamored of superheroes. Mm-hmm. So they jumped at the chance to do non superheroes. I mean, you're going to get to Alex Toth, who obviously would have. If, if he had wanted to do superhero comics, DC would have thrown every book they could have done at him but he right. chose to do i mean this was he was a major figure in in art and what is he choosing to do he chose to do romance you know <laughs> so, well, in 1970s yeah. yeah right in the 1970s right this is what he was doing i mean he could have done batman superman no he wanted to do a romance story <laughs> now talking about Joe Orlando. now by the way i i am interpreting the cover different than you i think both of these images are from the first one to wed the devil i think that is uh the young lady with her lady love justin and then the other images of the baron the controlling bad guy who because she's in in both images the, the lady's blonde and wearing a blue dress so yeah, that's I think true it, i think yeah. it's the same girl that could be. But but talking about Joe Orlando, I mean, look at the detail he put into that tree. I mean, he he clearly cared about drawing this. Um, but it's like you said, he just it's it's not superheroes he wanted to do. So yep. yeah, I think it's nice. All right, well, I'm going to take the first story uh, that I absolutely adore. They're like you, I'm in love too. I love this digest; it was so much fun. So the first one is "To Wed the Devil," pages of six, thirty-six pages, plotted by Joe Orlando, script by Oh, see that's yeah, that's why it's Joe Orlando drew the cover. Yeah, because it's um. It's a story. That's why it's – yeah, it's definitely just talking about the way the devil on the cover. All right. So plot by Joe Orlando, script by Len Wein, art by Tony DiZanuga. Uh, D- D- I can never say his name. Say it for me, please. DiZanuga. Thank you. I just can't say it. It's reprinted from Sinister House of Secret Love number 2 from 1971. Now, one observation I made when I was I was looking at the um, some scans of Sinister House of Secret Love number 2, comparing it to the digest I had in my hand – it's interesting. The coloring is actually different. So, like in the original, it opens with Sarah, the lead character. She's wearing a blue dress, just like she is here on the cover. But in the digest, the dress is actually magenta. And then, like the cat in the original, is it's a white cat. 
And uh, in this one, it's actually an orange tabby cat throughout the whole digest. And there's that's just a few examples. There's other examples where they just ch- change the colors completely. So um, I, I didn't even think about that. I, I just assumed that the, the plates would be the same. But yeah, so that obviously they had to, someone had to come back and recolor all of these things. So here we go. Here's the story. So we're introduced to Sarah. Uh, she's a beautiful and somewhat spoiled young woman who resides with her wealthy father and their dutiful and witchy servant, Agatha. Now, one day, Sarah and her beloved cat, Tabita, uh, stumble upon Agatha in the middle of a pentagram performing a spell. Now, Sarah freaks out, even though Agatha swears the spell was to improve Sarah's fortunes and love. Sarah is suitably creeped out. Now, uh, Sarah wants Agatha fired, but her father and her uncle won't hear of it. Now, about that same time, the love of Sarah's life, Justin, arrives. He proposed to Sarah, and the happy couple go to announce their engagement to her father. Unfortunately, Sarah's father has other plans for her. Due to his uh, unforeseen and sudden bankruptcy, Sarah's father is planning to marry her off to a rich baron named Luther Dumont. That doesn't sound like a bad guy name at all. So uh, Luther is going to loan money to Sarah's father, uh, the money he needs to get back on his feet. So after hearing her father's plea, Sarah actually agrees to marry the Baron uh, through tears the whole time. And understandably, Justin, the, the man who just proposed to her, is furious when he learns of this and actually attacks Sarah's father, knocking him to the ground. Jump forward a bit, and Sarah is sent off in a carriage uh, off to Bohemia to meet her new husband. And she's accompanied on her journey by uh, her cat and that old crone, Agatha. Now, during the trip, their carriage comes to a halt as it's lost a wheel. And a band of thieves descend upon them, shooting the driver and Agatha. But Sarah is then rescued by another mysterious man from the shadows. Now, this mysterious man carries Sarah and the cat to the Baron's lofty castle. After some mistaken identity, Sarah discovers that her rescuer was none other than the Baron himself her future husband. She finds him in another pentagram, casting a spell of his own. What is it with these people? Anyway, uh, then Baron Luther Dumont draws his bride-to-be into his arms and bewitches her with a kiss. Sarah's past begins to magically drift away as she is mesmerized. Now, eventually Sarah is shaken out of her dark and romantic haze when she finds her beloved cat dead. And what follows is a whole complicated series of deceptions, all leading to Sarah in a cellar where she is unknowingly about to wed the Baron. Along the way, she discovers that the old crone Agatha is actually alive, and the Baron is actually Agatha's son. It's all one big plot. Creepy. Uh, now, thankfully, Sarah's true love, Justin, arrives just in the nick of time. He sends the Baron plunging to his death, and Sarah and Justin escape. And the lovers are met by Sarah's uncle and his friend, and all watch the Baron's house explode. Then we get this very unusual, I thought, uh, five-page epilogue. It's all written in prose with little inset pictures. The epilogue tells the story of Sarah and Justin's happy marriage and how the family is healed as the father apologizes and then finds the necessary funding elsewhere as it turns um, to get the money that he needs. Turns out that his finances had been tampered with by Agatha and the Baron for their own evil game. And in the end, true love has won out. So what would you think of the story, buddy? I dug it. I really liked it. I mean, first of all, the art job by Tony DeZanaga. This is something I mentioned over on um, Treasury Cast that I did on the Ghosts Treasury with Ryan mm-hmm. for Halloween. That when I was a kid, I didn't like Tony DeZanaga's work at all. I just really? Like, yeah, I didn't like it. It was scratchy and ugly, and I was like, it's awkward. Now I love it. 
I just love it. it. It's so interesting. I love the these full page illustrations he's doing at like the sort of chapter headings. Mm-hmm. They're just beautiful. They remind me of what like if this had been done as an hour long TV show. Like this is what you mm-hmm. get coming back from commercial, right? You know, after you've seen the ads for Geritol and and whatever <laughs> Maalox, it's like shattered dreams, and you have that. So that's what's really beautiful. I like how. Kind of, it really gets bonkers crazy with all the Satanist stuff. Yep. At the end, like they're like they're like a cult. I've mentioned on Film and Water and other shows that like cults to me are like the scariest part to me of horror is like cult horror. That's just really creepy. The guy, the the father uh, character in, yep. in a bunch of panels, he is the spitting image of Claude Rains. Uh, the actor Claude Rains, and I don't know whether Tony Dezonaga planned that, but there's some panels where he just looks so much like Claude Rains that I'm, I'm thinking it can't be a, a coincidence. And Claude Rains, of course, was you know like did a lot of great horror movies. He was in The Wolfman, and he's, he was The Invisible Man. So it wouldn't surprise me if if that was partly based on that. Um, you, you might be right. I mean, the the and no, I noticed throughout. I was thinking, I, and I'm not good at identifying actors or actresses, but the illustrations of the the daughter Sarah. First of all, she's she's absolutely beautiful, and he does a wonderful job illustrating. And uh, I really do think of him more as an illustrator than an artist. I mean, it's just gorgeous. But her her facial expressions look almost like it's like, wow. I mean, he really captured that look and got me thinking maybe he was using photo reference. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe he uses used a lot of photo reference for folks, and that would explain where you were getting your uh, your likeness to that actor. Yeah, maybe so. It's certainly possible. I love the design of the Baron. When he first shows up, he looks like a DC universe character. He's got like a cape and he's got the two guns and he looks Baron really Winters. cool. Yeah, Baron Winters, exactly. I, I couldn't help but notice in it's page 24 of the story where we follow uh, the follow her into uh, her getting a bath and yep. she is topless. And naked. I mean, you don't see anything, but she's topless. And that to, again, that to me, that suggests that these comics were aimed at a slightly older audience, a presumably more sophisticated audience, because you didn't need to draw it like that. But they did it because it was that's you know, this was probably aimed at a slightly older uh, readers, at least that was that was the idea. I hate the fact that the cat gets it, um, just because I don't want to see that in a story, and especially in the second story, a dog gets it. So there seems to be a theme here. And glad you brought that up. There's two themes. There's there's the dying pet and the villain falling from a great height to his death. But yes. it happens in both stories. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I love the ending. I just think it's great. The guy ends up uh, the, that panel where he's falling, mm-hmm. and it's all the motion lines. I think that looks terrific. Again, I really and and it kind of gets like um, fall of house of the fall of the house of Usher at the end, where the whole house it collapses in on itself. Yeah. At the end, which I thought was really cool. And apparently, these guys, these characters, came back in other stories. What? Uh, yes, I found a comment. You there mean the a, the uncle and the friend? Yeah, there was a great oh. write up on of this story on the on the website Sequential Crush, which is a great site. Um, the the woman who writes that, uh, say Jacqueline Nodell, was actually on Film and Water once, and somebody mentioned that the devil fighting team of Father John and Rabbi Samuel appeared in House of Secrets number eighty nine, and then number one fifty. So yeah. I had no idea. So the, these guys are like in the DC universe. So that means Aquaman exists in this stories universe. <laughs> That's probably true. It's probably true. Mm-hmm. By the way, I, I'm glad you mentioned that website because I did forget to mention. I sort of cribbed a lot of my recap recap from that site. So full credit to them. Uh, I use that as a huge basis for my recap. I mean, a lot of it was myself as well. But thank you to them for having that out there. Yes, perfect. Um, so I the first again going back to the illustration, just stunning, like the epilogue, you know, which is yeah, all that in was prose, very unusual, like the, yeah. 
And the inset pictures, though, I mean, just the line work. Now, some of it's the coloring. So the coloring, but you can tell that he had a, a plan for the coloring, especially like you know the, on the first page of the of the of the epilogue where the faces are all lit on one side. So clearly, Tony had a plan for the the coloring there. Uh, it's just the artwork is stunning. The line work, it's just beautiful. It, he is a hell of an artist. Just wow. Um, Gosh, I, I love the, the way the story is just built. It, it feels a, a little formulaic and that it's just like, okay, beautiful woman or stunningly beautiful woman who's supposed to marry one guy. She can't. She's promised to someone else. She gets caught up in something evil. And in this case, it's magic. You know, there's, so there's magic. There's castles. There's barons. It, 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 hits, it hits all the right gothic romance buttons, you know. And then uh, the fall, the, the fall is not supernatural anyway. It's just he, he dies from, you know, he, through, through his own means really is what ends up happening. And it's, um, it, it's just super fun. I, I like the way it's constructed. I love the story. And, uh, and she's really, really hot. I mean, just, um, and that, that's a theme too, through all these. So what, what makes me wonder is drawing her in such a way and telling the story, like you said, the nude bath thing. Do you think this story was aimed at young girls in 1971? Or do you think it was aimed at young boys? Oh, no. I, I think it was aimed at young teen girls. I think yeah. that's what it was aimed at. Yeah, because I mean, I DC so. still had a thriving romance line uh, by this point. They didn't really give up the ghost on the romance comics until around seventy-seven, seventy-eight. So they were still—I mean, it was certainly dwindling by seventy-one, seventy-two. But they were trying, and so they still had a somewhat of an audience. So I think that's who it was—that's who it was aimed at. And you, you mentioned that it's kind of formulaic, but I mean, it's genre. It's yeah. it's it's the same thing as a horror comic or anything. I mean, you you pick up a Superman comic, you kind of know what you're going to get, and that's what this yeah. is. This is this is there's going to be a beautiful woman, uh, a man that she falls in love with who's troubled. Uh, there's going to be a big castle because there's always, everybody's wealthy in these stories. The men are always wealthy in these <laughs> stories. If you, if you ever go back when I worked at Borders, we had like a, a special rack of just like these little like uh, they were romance titles, but they were clearly almost like. I don't want to say low rent because that that's insulting, but they were like series. Okay, it was like you know, number like nine Harlequin or, or yeah, kind of like that, and it would be like you know number nine of the I Love a Cowboy series, and it was like they were all the same book with just yeah. different pronouns. I mean, it was like the the you know, the woman who fell in love with the bad cowboy, the woman who fell with the bad race car driver, the woman who fell in love with the bad business yeah. owner. I mean, it was the same story, and that's what. Clearly, these readers want, and that's what you had here. I really do love the the, the epilogue in text form. It was hard to read as hell in a digest, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, it was just so unusual to, to see that. Like, oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, we're ending in this totally different manner with these nice spot illustrations by Tony DeZonaga. Great stuff. They're better than nice. They're just go- – look, look at the first page of that epilogue. Look at the line work like at the top uh, where, they're, where they're under the wedding ch- – pavilion there look yeah. at the background whatever the heck that thing is it's so ornate and in the bottom the flowers i mean incredible amount of illustration yeah, really nice stuff this thing. Yep. yeah he, he really knows his way around a line so it's really nice yeah. so i love that story i think it's a win and when i said it was for me like i didn't mean that as a knock so i apologize right. that it came across that way yeah yeah no but i mean yeah i mean that's if there's something comforting about it you just mm-hmm. know that this is what you're going to get it's going to be a creepy castle it's going to rain it's going to be Lightning, you know, this is what it is. And you get a lot of that in the very next story, too, which is our – the second story is uh, Bride of the Falcon from Sinister House of Secret Love by Frank Robbins, writer, not the artist. I mean he's the same artist, but he's a writer here. Alex Toth and Frank Giacoya. A young woman waits on a dock in Venice, waiting for a gondola that will take her to Isola Tranquillo, a remote castle that sits atop a hill. The gondola driver asks her if she's sure that's where she wants to go. 
She insists, but the gondolier says that she must find a younger, more foolhardy gondolier to make the journey. The young girl waits with her dog, Pooge, as the fog and rain drifts in. A flashback reveals that the girl, Kathy Harwood, is responding to a personal ad placed by a man, a count no less, who is lonely and seeks compassion and love. Over the course of many hundreds of letters, Kathy gets to know the man, this Count Lorenzo de Falco, and eventually fall in love with him. She finds a gondolier willing to take her to the island and even ring the bell, which is so loud it could wake the dead. Waiting for her at the top of the stairs is the handsome Count Lorenzo, and the two kiss as a storm rages outside. We learn that both Kathy and the Count have a deep-seated insecurity. Kathy is deaf, a psychological result of watching a man she loved die in a racing car accident, and the Count is disfigured, half of his face scarred deeply. Lorenzo and Kathy want to marry immediately, but it must wait until Kathy gets the approval of Lorenzo's mute, wheelchair-bound mother. Time passes, and Kathy helps Lorenzo care for the mother, which includes mixing her daily medicine with milk, quote, so it tastes less bitter, end quote. <laughs> Lorenzo's mother doesn't indicate her approval of Kathy, and the staff seems to so veiled contempt for her. One day, Kathy's dog, Pooge, laps up some of the spilled milk and is later found dead in the fields outside the castle. <gasps> yeah, I know, really. The gondolier, Robert, sneaks onto the island to tell Kathy the truth, the truth that everyone in Venice knows. Lorenzo's mother is not his mother at all, but his wife, Freudian. <gasps> Lorenzo marries the old woman. Lorenzo married the old woman for her money and immediately started taking up with the maid. When caught, the old woman sicked her pet falcon on Lorenzo, leaving him scarred for life. The stress of this, though, gave her a stroke, leaving her mute. Kathy tries to communicate with the woman and learns that she can now hear again, a fact she keeps hidden from Lorenzo. Lorenzo confesses to Kathy, and Roberto and the police arrive. Roberto is an undercover detective, and now thanks to Kathy, they have evidence that Lorenzo has been slowly poisoning his wife via the milk. Lorenzo drags his wife out of the castle, using her as a shield. He brings her to the edge of a cliff and pushes her off. Unfortunately for Lorenzo, his scarf is caught on one of the wheels, and he's pulled over with her to his death. Sometime later, Kathy takes a boat back to Venice alongside Roberto. Not the end, just a new beginning. So what did you think of Bride of the Falcon? I am also in love with Kathy. Uh, she's, Alex Toth does not know how to draw an, uh, an unattractive woman. She's beautiful. The line works great. The story is super fun. I love the whole thing where she's deaf and he's scarred. I mean, like they even say, they even make a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil reference later on. It just it works. Uh, the character's built. It's so creepy. I mean, even reading it, I was like, I found myself saying, like, don't go to the island. Don't go to the island. It's bad. Even though I knew the way the direction the story had to go. And again, the, the illustration, man, just is gorgeous. Like, even just the headers, a Bride of the Falcon, you know, it, it was even designed in such a way to just really grab you. Um, I think I think the gondola stuff, the, the gondola driver who's secretly a secret agent might be a little bit much. <laughs> it's funny. And, you know, actually, the um, I don't know if he's a – I can't remember if he's a count or not, but the guy who uh, – He's a count, yeah. Okay, yeah, the count. Who, you know, is he the same guy, Falco, that went on to sing Am Amadeus? But anyway, um, he looks a little bit like a, a, a Jim Aparo design to me, actually. Like he looks like a Jim Aparo character. I don't I, – maybe I'm just seeing something I want to see, but that's what I see when I see his face. He's got that um, fl hair flip that Aparo loved to draw. This little tendril of hair that spins mm -hmm. off and kind of flutters in different directions. Yeah. 
And again, ticked all the right boxes, you know, with the, with how the guy, the, the guy, the manor is despicable. He marries for the money. He's sleeping with the maid. You know, all of that was perfect. The, the, the mother or he thinks the mother being the, the, the wife, who's actually the wife. I mean, and if you go back, because I've read it twice now, there's actually hints throughout the story. It's really well crafted because, you know, she it's not revealed that she's deaf till about halfway through the story. And right. rereading it, you realize there's scenes where people are talking to her and she's not looking at them and she can't hear what they're saying right and it makes so much more sense the second time you're like oh she didn't hear him warn her about that or when he goes why aren't you listening to me it's that she can't hear him and that the the mom who's actually tapping her ring throughout the entire thing she never hears the ring tapping until her hearing comes back it's all constructed really really well well it's that's alex toth and frank robbins i mean you well, can't okay, beat that i mean good lord what a combination you know yep. So I was a little jealous of you when you picked this one to recap because it is just absolutely wonderful. It's it's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, there's nothing left to say about Alex Toth. I mean, the guy is one of the greatest guys ever to do it. Uh, he very rarely did DC Comics work, and when he did, it was stuff for their genre titles. He did westerns, you know, he did war, uh, he did romance, he did horror, but he very rarely did superheroes. And he just gives this thing such amazing visual life i mean mm-hmm. in every panel he is one of the best guys to ever draw people writing a letter you, <laughs> the average person when they draw somebody drawing a letter they they don't they they put them in a position nobody does where their head is way far back from the paper but of course when you write a letter you're kind of hunched over and there's a scene here where she's writing these letters to the count and she's got she's all hunched over and her, she, her face is all scrunched up and she practically has like her tongue sticking out like it looks <laughs> like the way people look he is also a master at silhouettes throughout the story there is constant use of silhouettes to provide depth of foreground or background and you know a lot of people say oh it's cheating but it's it's cheating only if you don't know what you're doing but of course toth does and he's just constantly setting up that there's – oh, there's somebody in the foreground lurking or there's somebody in the background lurking. I mean he's just so ridiculously good at that. This thing was so beautiful to look at and it works really well in the reduced format because his line work was so thick and so decisive that even at a shrunk down size, you could always figure out what you were looking at. I love the whole angle with the Falcon. I mean this did, this does have a little bit of a Scooby-Doo feel to it. You know, It would have worked too if it hadn't been for Roberto and whatever. Um, I liked the, 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 all the scenes where she's like, what was Roberto trying to tell me? And you've got all these the, – the thought balloons and it's like mm-hmm. – it's like this little collage there. I love the – the, that the mom tries to the the mother tries to communicate with by clicking her ring yep. on the, the 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 handle of her thing, and you got all these big sound effects of the click 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 clicks spreading across the page, really giving sense that it's like filling the the room with the sound. I love the shot of Roberto shooting the gun, where everyone has their hand. Like think about how many times you've seen a gun go off in a movie or a TV show or a comic book, where people just stand there as the gun goes off. Well, meanwhile, in real life, it makes a tremendous amount of noise. And in right. that panel, you see everybody like, like they have their hands up because it's so loud and such a discordant sound. So there's that. I well, love the this. Falcons flying at them at the same time. Well, there is that. I love the scene of the of Lorenzo getting his his scarf caught. That's a great. You That's know, fantastic. You know, perfect ending. And then this nice mellow ending of her going off, and we see the silhouette, and we see again, see the gondolier there with the coffins. It's just, it's a masterpiece. It's just like, this is the kind of thing where I can't, I can only imagine that boys didn't buy these comics because it was like, ew, icky romance. But I think any boy worth his salt, if he had read this at the time, would have been like, this is a great story. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is just terrific. Read more of this stuff. It's, 
they picked I almost think it was like this was the one they knew they were going to reprint and then they built the rest of the digest around it or something because it's just probably the I, I did find some articles on this online and a lot of people were saying this is like the single finest romance story DC did of their run. Oh, so, wow. OK. Yeah. All right. I mean, I can I can I can I'm feeling that, you know, as I read it, it's definitely my favorite of the digest. I do want to point out two panels. You, you touched on one of them already. The gondola at the end with the two coffins is so wonderfully illustrated. Again, the silhouette of, of the gondola driver, but the, the coffins are in the foreground. And it's just like, you know, you first get the panel of her and Justin leaving, then you get the gondola one, and then it, it just, it's so foreboding. It's like, oh, it just kind of fills you with, like, I don't know, a, a sadness and a, like, oh, wow. It's just very powerful. And then going back, the, the scene about where she's writing the letter, there's a panel after that where it's their hands crossing across the oceans. It's, it's really, it's a conceptual panel. You see the ocean, the curve of the earth. You see letters flying back and forth across the ocean. You see their hands uh, sort of their fingers touching with all these little tiny hearts all around it. It's a wonderful way to communicate that these letters, you know, went across the ocean to each other and it, it helped them fall in love. It's great. Yeah. And then oh. you get a, you get a little panel of, uh, this always cracks me up in romance comics though. You get the panel of the, you know, the young, beautiful girl wearing skimpy lingerie, basically, you know, it's a, nobody, I'm sorry. I don't know. Maybe in the seventies things were different, but Women don't lounge around the house wearing this kind of stuff. It's not how the real world works. But I do love that she's wearing that. And she's she's literally clutching the letter to her face like she's smelling it. She's so happy she's got this letter. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just it's really terrific. It's just such a beautiful story. And I love this guy. The I love his again. His panel layouts are terrific. Uh, there's a great scene of the two of them in like the. Uh, the woods that's like done in silhouette, except there's a like this dappled effect where there's like mm-hmm. yellow light coming through. Like that's really it's beautifully colored too. Uh, Pooj is very cute. I feel bad that Pooj gets it because again the cat gets it in the story first story, and then the dog gets it in the second one. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just I don't know. It's it's really just a beautiful. I I had so much fun rereading this. I wonder what else. Like, you know, Sinister House of Secret Love. Both of these come from there. Both of these are wins. Um, now there's only four issues, so I wonder what the if the other two issues have prizes in them too. Maybe we should look this up. It'd be, it'd be fun we, to we see. Love, yeah, I mean they, they they were reprinted in a showcase. There is a Sinister House of Secret really? Love showcase. Yeah, I think it's out of print, but it does exist. So uh, I mean, I would imagine you know you could hmm. maybe they, I it's if it's a showcase, it must be print more than just these four issues because that's not yeah. enough. It must do the Dark so they, Mansion stuff as well. Yeah, it's, and stuff yeah. like that. Because because actually, if I if I read the publication history right, the way it would work would be Dark Mansions would come out one month or dark singular sorry dark mansion would come out one month and then secret love would, or sinister love would come out the next month and it, so because they were bi-monthly titles oh, okay. so they would just switch on and off each month so there was always one on the sands but it was two different titles that makes sense yeah, yeah. No, it does exist as a showcase so it might be worth if we can find it at a reasonable price uh it might be worth picking up cool well we have we've gone on and on and waxed this car to the point where we're really wasting air just saying we love it we love it we love it so it's, we should probably move on but it is breathtaking folks now um we will do our best to put some images on the website, I think, right? We can get some, probably some scans of this or something and get on Absolutely. the website, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely check that out, folks. We'll have an image gallery. Now, as Rob said, we're going to skip the Madame Xanadu uh, story. It is very good. It's 17 pages. It's very enjoyable. Uh, and, and, you know, it's illustrated uh, by Val um, Mayerick. Well, Thank you. And David Michelini wrote it. So, I mean, it's, it's a fun story, but we're just not going to touch on that here. You should definitely, again, it's uh, Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, episode 14. Definitely want to check that out. 
Yeah, it's all good stuff. And plus, it features a pinup by Michael Kaluta, so you can't beat that too. It's, it's, That's true. They like said I really feel like they were just like maybe they couldn't find a third story because these stories are long. Um, they, I mean, each of the the Bride of Falcon is thirty six pages, mm-hmm. and To Wed a Devil is something close to that. So, I mean, they may not have literally had enough space for a third story, uh, considering the digest had to be a certain number of pages. I guess, well, I guess they could have been longer if they wanted it to be, but uh, I think. There's a combo of probably we need a story it has to be this many pages, and maybe we need to throw something in for the boys. And oh, okay, maybe we could do Madame Xanadu. She's a DC character. You know, she's a DCU character, so good enough. Well, they may have also been trying to be a little more fair and balanced because in that one, the bad guy is actually a woman. So because yes. uh, the first two is you know both the men are bad guys, men are bad guys, and this one it's a, they flip the, they flip the script. Now the main protagonist is still a female character, uh, but the bad guy is a woman in that one. So I don't know. Well, it's, I got to say, I got my $25 worth with this comic. I really did. So I'm, <laughs> I am perfectly fine that I spent about this much uh, amount of money on this comic. So I, I'm pleased with that. Yeah, it's a really fun digest. I wish DC had done more of them. Uh, they were clearly willing to experiment and do collections that probably weren't terribly popular. Later on, they would do a bunch of plop collections that I don't <laughs> think anybody was asking for at the time. So I appreciate that DC was kind of willing to dip into their archives and, and do something like this. And it's a shame they never did more, but at least we have this one. Yep. It'll always be in our hearts. We'll, we'll always have the Dark Mansion. Bro. That's true. Some people have Paris. We have Dark Mansions. <laughs> well, folks, I think we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback. And we're going to announce the winners of the contest. Come back. Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come back with the Supermates. I said, come back. Back to the House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but... In a half an hour, the moon will rise and I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Hain. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, no, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Sean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, master. He thinks I'm Dracula. Podcasts of Forbidden Love presents your listener feedback. Thanks so much, folks, for all your feedback on the show. We absolutely love seeing the feedback. It helps stroke Rob's ego. Believe me, he needs it. Uh, and it, it, you know, it encourages us to keep going, and it builds this community of people that love Digest. 
So uh, first thing we're going to do is touch on a couple of iTunes reviews. We sincerely appreciate those. First one comes from our buddy Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, also the author of Hamilton vs. Burr, comic book you should check out. Jared wrote, Rob and Shag once again bring their trademark fun, welcoming personalities to the world of the most portable of print comics, the Digest. As a lover of Digest, especially Archie and G.I. Joe, which I think will never be covered on this show, it's only drawback, uh, I find this show to be entertaining and informative, which is what I've come to expect from the Fire and Water brand. In, in general, uh, you know what, you know, I'm sorry, you know what might make a cool Digest? Hamilton versus Burr, a werewolf tale. Not that I'm biased, but it's available on Amazon Kindle for just $4. Digestcast! Oh, Jared, he knows how to do a plug, and he knows that I will read an entire iTunes review on the air. So well played, Jared. Well played. Yes, nicely done. And get on that digest, buddy. You know, come on, put it out. You should. Read it. Yeah. Uh, we also got another iTunes review from Slang Word, a comics fan. Another Fire and Water podcast, another must listen. The opposite of the Treasury Editions, see Treasury Cast, but somehow the same and bringing us stories we Bronze Age kids otherwise might have missed. A fun look back at those little gems, and by sheer force of will, Robin Shag managed to adjust the universe so that new superhero digests are being made. <laughs> We're still taking credit for that, right? We're making things happen, man. Hey, we're All right. super – look, what it looks – Chris and I do Superman Movie Minute. Look what happens. Superman movies playing on the big screen again. Exactly. And we we did Digest Cast. We did a couple episodes. Suddenly Marvel Digests are in the grocery store. I, it's it's a power that we have to use responsibly. It's true. Aquaman movie. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm working on the uh, Rob Wins a Million Dollars and Dates Carl Johansson podcast, so we'll see how that comes Good out. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get any guest stars. <laughs> <laughs> Just need the one. Uh, we, got, uh, we have comments from episode six, which was our year's best comic stories of 1985. First oh, comment. That, so that was a good book. First collection, First uh, comment is from Nicholas Prom, the aforementioned Nicholas Prom, who does the Comic Reflections podcast. My favorite digest was and is a mass market paperback by Will Eisner. Who's that guy? Called Star Jaws. It's all one-page gag cartoons in general science fiction vein, but specifically lots of Star Wars and Jaws-oriented stuff. My grandmother <laughs> bought it for me at a garage sale when I was probably six or seven, and I read the thing to bits. I absolutely love this fun little book of cartoons. I have never read it. I've seen it. And I just find it very funny that it's Will Eisner. The great Will Eisner is sort of like doing Star, Star Wars jokes. But nevertheless, yeah, I've I seen that book. It sounds like it's like custom made for you. It's Star Wars. It's Jaws. Yeah. It's Will Eisner. It's a digest. I mean, if if, if Bob Bob Dylan had has a hand in it, it's pretty yeah, much yeah. the only thing else that could have been done to make it more you. It's perfect. Yeah, I gotta. It, it, it sounds so silly, but yeah, I do kind of want to check it out. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. Uh, we got another comment from Ted Kilvington, who does the Justice Trek podcast. I was 10 years old in the summer of 1979. You cue the music. And I had heard about this thing called comic book collecting. I wanted to become a collector myself and start a run of series from the first issue. That's when I came across the best of DC number one and started buying DC Digest from that point forward. What hooked me on comics in the first place, though, was the Justice League Justice Society team-ups. So my ultimate favorite digest would be DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 11, reprinting the classic 1972 JLA-JSA adventure where they rescued the Seven Soldiers of Victory. That tale included such classic scenes as the Golden Age Green Arrow being mistaken for Robin Hood and, Gold and Green Arrow's sidekick being turned into a centaur. Oh, that old plot. The story was originally published in JLA numbers 100 to 102, starting in June 1972. Just one year earlier, in June 1971, DC published Green Lantern number 85, which had a story where the Earth One Green Arrow sidekick was shooting heroin. So just one year after Earth One Speedy shot horse, the Earth Two Speedy became a man horse. Coincidence? <laughs> 
Wow, Ted really thought about this for a while, didn't he? Imagine he really has this like. Imagine this dartboard with all these arrows and like pinpoints, like you know, question marks, and connections. He's, that's what he's got going on there. He is the question. So yeah, uh, please take note of DC special ribbon, uh, special blue ribbon digest number eleven reprinting Justice League of America one hundred to one hundred two. It shockingly comes up a lot in these comments uh, in this episode. I, I was really surprised to see how many times it gets referenced. So uh, Joe X, we we had picked on uh, in, in the last digest. There's a Superman story where he goes to see Lori Lormaris and her cuckold husband Ronald, and we just had some fun poking at him. And Joe says, "Ronald, the poor cuckold uh, space merman. Every time he appears, you can see on his face that he knows Lori is settled for him. Oh, so sad, so sad." And he goes on to say, "Mogo, of course, the Alan Moore story we talked about is very much in tune with Alan Moore's future shocks from 2000 AD, like the Omega Men one later in the digest." Uh, I'm not going to comment much about Jeff John's use of uh, Alan Moore's Green Lantern and really every other Alan Moore DCU story concepts other than to say that I'm not a fan. And then Joe finishes up by saying, can't believe you guys didn't catch that the Katana story is a spirit tribute. There's a Will Eisner reference again. Uh, since the announcer is Bill Renzi, a pen name that Eisner used to use. I had no idea, Rob. Now I knew that I like I rem- remember reading that he used that as a pen name, but that's pretty obscure, Joe. I don't think you can hit us too hard. We're not catching that. I mean, jeez. Joe knows his stuff, so he I mean, there's no. Does. I mean, Joe does. So he, Joe, you you have a much sharper eye than us for these things. We're yeah. just a couple of goofballs with a microphone. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we got a comment from Robert J. Smith. Uh, the Protectives website and book. That's hard to say. Uh, he says, here's a coincidence. I moved to a new house about five days ago, and during the moving process, I found this very digest in a box of miscellaneous crap from my childhood. I'm going to go read it and then listen to the podcast. Thanks. So look at that. Let's see. We were even making the book appear in random places. <laughs> well, you know, someone else, we did a, the Supergirl one, and then it showed up in a, in a house a guy was renting or something like that, too. So, yeah, this podcast is full of magic, Amazing. almost like dark, gothic, romantic magic, Rob. Mm. I need to get a falcon. <laughs> um, then we heard from Clint Robinson from the Coffee and Comics podcast. Uh, my buddy says, I'll go with the digest. And again, we ask people to tell us their favorite digest. That's what a lot of these comments are. He says, I'll go with the digest sized issues of Adventure Comics is my favorite. If I had to pick just one, I'd go with Adventure Comics number 497. It's got all kinds of great content Challengers of the Unknown in Vegas, a reprint of the first appearance of Ultra Boy, part of the amazing Steve Skeets run on Aquaman, a reprint of the first appearance of Black Adam, a Legion of Superheroes. Story featuring a robot Lex Luthor plus a crazy Neil Adams Spectre story. This book has it all. Nice. You know, I've got a few of those uh, Adventure Comics digests. I've got to check that one out. That They're sounds really so good. They're so fun. That they, Adventure only lasted a year in the digest format, but man, they've written a lot of great stuff in there. So the Legion of Superheroes stories you're calling great, if I understand correctly. Uh, no, everything else is really good. <laughs> Not that just because Aquaman's in it, you're not buying it. It's the it's the only place where those stories have ever been reprinted. I mean, it's coming soon, but nevertheless, for for many decades, it was the only place. It also later on it reprints that uh, two uh, two issue Black Canary story by drawn by Alex Toth. Uh, The the challenges of the unknown stuff was a new story. There's oh man, there's so much great stuff in there. So yeah, Clint's right. Those adventure books are really really good. 
Uh, we got a comment from Darpal, Dr. Ange, who, of course, has been on this very show. He does the Supergirl blog comic box commentary, plus he's a member of the Legion of Super Bloggers. What a wild digest. Perhaps it should have been called the best of Giffen and Moore in 1985 <laughs> with a smaller verb and others. I do love the JL Moore stuff, especially the one where Kat Matui meets the alien who has no sense of sight and how that affects its ability to weird the green energy as well as its monster to charge the ring. I have to echo the decision to put Swamp Thing number 34 in this. The digest format is horrible for this issue, and it is rather sexy for this as well. Although back then it was trumped that the DC just isn't for comics and kids for... It, DC isn't just for kids anymore. As Shag said, I bought as many of these digests as I could back in the day because they were perfect summer reading for the beach and even sitting in my backyard under the tree and enjoying the breeze. So I have great memories for many. But while you might think my favorite digest would be the Supergirl one, the truth is I just got the digest within the last couple of years and had already read all the stories there. While I love that Supergirl got that treatment, it isn't my fave. My top three digests. Third place, the Brave and the Bold one where Batman on the cover but doesn't have Batman on the inside. Tom Hawk is nodding and smiling <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> the digest. Treasure, right. treasury reference. That digest exposed me to DC properties I didn't know about. Silent Night, Viking Prince, Cave Carson. There was no Wikipedia back then, so exposure to more stuff was awesome. And the Kubert art on the Viking Prince sparkles. Second place, DC Blue Room Digest number three, JSA. First thing first, this is where I was first exposed to the Pask, the, um, uh, that's not Paskin. Uh, it's Mar- Martin Pasco. Pasco, uh, yeah. Uh, Simon's a damn spell correct. Uh, Pasco, <laughs> Simon's and Dr. Fate story from first issue special number one, number three. So good. Yeah, you know how much I love that. It also included the first appearance of Power Girl reprinted. It introduced me to Brainwave and Perdegaton, sort of. And the Golden Age reprint was so cool with the stream of ruthlessness. First Why haven't we covered that digest? I, you know how much I love that Marty Pascal, uh, Simons, and Dr. Face store. I know I've already done a whole episode dedicated to it. I don't care. I will talk about it again. Well, you have a chance to select it when we get to the end of the f- feedback here. Uh, first place, <laughs> DC Blue Ribbon Special number one, The Legion. Oh, come on, Ange. Um... I considered The Legion my first comic love and my first comic period. I have been a Legion fan as long as I can remember. So this digest, which reprinted their first story, the first Universal story, the first Fatal Five story, and the death of Feral Lad, the first Substitute Legion story. I knew of these characters and had heard of these stories, but this was the first time I could actually read them. This was like a primer on the Legion, and for a fan like me, it was a goldmine. Thanks again for another great show. Thank you, Ange. Those are all great selections. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, David S. Gutierrez writes in. He says the owner and operator of the Katana Banana. Oh, man, why am I roped into this? Uh, he <laughs> says uh, Rob is such a mogo. That's so very true. Boy, I hope nobody does anything weird with Arizia. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, future knowledge is always painful, isn't it? Uh, they heard from my buddy Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box. He says, it will be no surprise to anyone that my favorite digest is one of the Transformers comic magazine issues. Then he goes on to talk about specifically which one and his interest in uh, and doing a, a podcast about digest himself. Uh, he says, oh, as far as the issues, I'm choosing Transformers issue number nine, which reprints issues number 17 and 18 of the original comic, the Return to Cybertron story. That feature the first glimpses of modern-day Cybertron in the series, to say nothing of the introduction of several characters. An important moment in the days of 1980s Transformers fiction. Nice. The thing I remember the most about the Marvel Digest is like they were printed with that flexographic printing. And like there are those Spider-Man digests, and they're horrible. Like giant chunks of art just disappears. That's what I remember. I, think, I don't think Marvel is paying a whole lot of attention to their digest. Well, I, you know, you guys have always said that to me, and you know, I, I've never had any of these Marvel digests so recently, and I'm looking at the Spider-Man one right now, um, issue number two, and it 
seems perfectly fine to me. Hmm. I'm not seeing anything that's missing. Now, maybe I just don't know the old stories and I'm not recognizing the Ditko parts that are missing. I don't know. It looks pretty great. So they had varying, you know, variances on the printing or something. Because I have ones, I have some Spider-Man dead where there's literally like white dots in the artwork where it's just, there's, it's, there's no way you wouldn't know that that's missing because all of a sudden it's like half of Spider-Man's face is gone. So Okay. So clearly uh, now I, I am – the second half of issue number six does have some problems here. I'm seeing that. The first half oddly doesn't, but the second half does have some issues. So maybe okay. that's – maybe it comes in later. I don't know. Maybe hmm. so. All right. Uh, then we heard from Ed ba- Bosn- Bosnar, who I always say his name wrong, so sorry about that, Ed. Uh, he says, here is my entry for your contest, even though you're discriminating against us European residents. Sorry about that, Ed. It's really Rob's fault. But uh, He says, I used to have many digests, and, so, and like so many of them, that it's hard to choose. But if you put my feet to the fire, I think it's Archie's Superhero Comics Digest number 2, published in 1979. Ah, look at that, buddy. I just got that. He says, uh, I was fascinated by all the Archie Red Circle heroes, who up to that point weren't compl- were completely unknown to me. There was a mix of old reprint stories and new ones apparently done just for that digest. So there were some classic stories in there featuring, for example, The Shield by uh, Simon and Kirby, no less, The Web and The Fly, and the new Black Hood story with art by Gray Morrow, Neil Adams, and Dick Giordano. The book also included a few uh, humorous super teen and pure heart evil heart stories featuring the Archie gang gang and a few sorcery and horror stories with art by Wally Wood and Jesse Santos. All in all, it was a great package, and I read that book many times over. Dang, that sounds good, Rob. I mean, I, we got to put that on the list soon. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's some – again, there's some really neat stuff there. The, the, the Archie, you know, with the red circle line, they really got some good good, good guys. To, when they decided to do superhero comics, they tried to do it right. Yeah. Uh, now, best- I, I never read any of the Red Circle stuff, but I know the characters from the Impact line, so I've, I've already got an affinity for the characters. Cool. All right. Uh, Sean M. Myers, my pal, he says, thanks for the shout-out regarding my love of this show. I love this episode, of course, and I always find it interesting to hear what you guys think of the stories inside East Digest. I listen to a lot of podcasts and a bunch of the shows on this network, and although I've been on Film & Water twice, Digest Cast is my favorite. Jeez, thanks, Sean. Picking my favorite digest <laughs> is like picking my favorite child. Even though I don't have any kids, it's still so tough, so I'll cheat. Super Friends, best of DC number three, should be my favorite. The cover is my favorite comic book cover of all time. There we go. This is the one I was talking about earlier. Yep. It misses out because it also features stories in the JLA and Teen Titans, which are great tales, but should all be Super Friends. I wish it would have reprinted issues seven through nine, which has the story of Zan and Jaina coming to Earth. The Sugar and Spike issues, best of DC's 29, 41, 47, 65, and 68, were great because at the time it was very rare for me to read or enjoy comics that were superhero-related, but the con- that weren't superhero-related, but the consummate execution of SNS is just fantastic. The year's best comic stories, along with the Superman, Batman, and team's best stories, are all just great volumes, and such a great thing to do is celebrate the writers and artists and to give DC fans an easy way to sample books that they might not know they would be interested in. I never would have read The Mouse of History or any other way, but it's a strong story that I remember to this day. All the Secret Origins issues are cool, with DC Special Number 5 being my most loved. Dead Man, Wonder Girl, JLA, Zatanna, and more. Both JLA issues. Superman battles weird villains. Well, you, you said JLA. JSA. Oh, JSA, yes. JSA. Yeah, I agree. Insulin. So good. Superman battles weird villains. Best of DC 54. Shows off the Mansfield's best rogues and cool stories. And now for my real answers. 
in the I already have all these issues, but I love the way they put them together category. Batman Family, best of DC 51. Batman Family is my all-time favorite comic, and this issue reprints the best storyline from that series. Plus, it features Man Bat as a private detective hero, which is how I love him best. <laughs> in the these stories are all new to me, and wow, now I love the character category. The Flash and his friends, DC special number two. I'm sure I knew of The Flash from JLA and The Challenge of the Super Friends, but these were the first solo stories that I read spotlighting him. And I absolutely love stories where Jay, Barry, and Wally team up together. Thank you for this great show, and I can't wait to hear the next episode in October. Well, thank you, Sean. We actually managed to get it out on time. Look at that. Amazing. Uh, you're welcome, everybody. Uh, we got a <laughs> comment from Chris Franklin, of course, our pal here on the network. He does uh, Supermates. He's doing House of Frankenstein right now. Superman Movie Minute with me and more. Listening now, and I have to comment on Rob's compliment on Swan's, Kurt Swan's art. Uh, Swan considered Al Williamson one of his favorite inkers. He definitely brought out the fine line work that most inkers tended to lose. They got paired several times in the later days of Schwartz's editorialship. Wow, you said something nice about Kurt Swan? That's crazy. I did. Wish we got, I that, really on, that, wish we got that on tape or something. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> unfortunate. No, no, no. The, the, I really did like that combo of Swan and Al Williamson. I think that was a nice look. Yeah. Uh, Chris goes on to say, okay, so this is the Dark Shadow stuff that ties into this volume here. He goes, oh, and to answer your question about Dark Shadows, it aired from 1966 to 1971. In fact, it ended in April of that year, a few months before Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love first hit the stands in July of 1971. Uh, Dark Shadows and Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love definitely tapped the same vein. Uh, there's a pun there, by the way. Uh, but by the time the comic got off the ground, the producers of Dark Shadows had apparently run the show uh, into the ground by abandoning their most popular characters and storylines and diverting much of their attention to producing two movies that came out towards the end of that run. But there still was enough gothic romance floating around in the zeitgeist, zeitgeist for DC to tap into or attempt to. During Dark Shadows' heyday in 1968 and 1969, the Comics Code Authority was finally starting to ease up, slowly, so DC was a bit behind the times, but not by much. As for the Digest, I know Dark Shadows had another round of syndication repeats in the early 1980s, so there may, so there may be a connection, but I kind of think that they just wanted to secure the copyright again, personally. You may be right. I, I, I still feel like, I know as a kid, Dark Shadows was on in syndication. I just don't remember whether it was you know around 81, 82, or whether it was later, like 85, 86. I just can't remember. But um, yeah, it's, but yeah, thank you for all that information on Dark Shadows. Thank you. It really fills in some holes there for us. Then we from, heard from Earth2, who does a DC Multiverse blog, and he wrote in to say, DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 3 from July to August 1980 was the one that got me completely hooked on the Justice Society, which uh, I first became familiar from the late – I'm sorry, uh, from late in their Adventure Comics run and the JLA-JSA team-up involving the death of Mr. Terrific. My love for the League magnified when I saw their Golden Age counterparts, and this digest was perfectly balanced between the modern-day tale, mashing classic members with their own version of the Teen Titans to craft a, a tale in five drowned men from the 1940s. So cool. So much love for the JSA, man. It's all, everybody loves them. Everybody loves the JSA. Then we heard from Jimmy Anderson from the Mad Hat and More podcast. Jimmy wrote, as others have said, the best of Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Digest number one, the one with Superman on the cover. I had bought some Archie Digest before that, but this was the first time I was able to read the back issues of Superman. Yes, I bought it new in the stands, and I live nowhere near any kind of store that had back issues, and it was too expensive to order book uh, books via mail order. Hmm. Totally understand, Jimmy. Heartbreaking. Uh, Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailitude Podcast Network says, While I don't want to necessarily enter the contest, too late, because I have enough stuff in this house already, I do want to talk about my favorite digest, which is Best of DC 66. 
I have a vivid memory of someone lending me this book in science class when I was in the seventh grade, and the two-part DC Comics Presents story it reprints sticks with me to this day. To live in peace nevermore from DCCP number 13 and Judge, Jury, and No Justice from DCCP 14 make up a very emotional story that pits Superman against the man that secretly kept his secret identity secret for decades, only to Superman turn against him when the Legion declares Pete Ross' son to be John Connor, only in this case John Connor is going to be ripped away from his mother to lead an army in space for the greater good of the universe. Pete then goes back in time, switches bodies with Superboy to get his revenge. It's an amazing story, and that digest was where I read it for the first time. My head's just spinning for that I, I'm description. like, what the hell? Did he have a stroke? What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure it all makes sense. Michael passed out on his keyboard, and that's what he got. Uh, we're from our buddy Alex Adrock. He goes, at the risk of betraying my love of superheroes, I'm going to come out and say that I love any and all Archie Digest. Not only were they a great gateway for anyone and everyone to get into comic book collecting, but they're really a bridge between friends and family. Even the most skeptical towards geek culture of family members enjoyed these things, which can be traded at cottages and beaches for different stories. But my nieces and daughters will love them too. To me, they'll always be a representative of summer and nostalgia before I had a feverish need to collect every issue of Batman and the X-Men. You know, I, Alex, you make a great point about just the, uh, the the broadness of the Archie Digest. My daughter bought a ton of these in the grocery store. She would see one, she would beg me for it, and we would read, you know, I don't know that we ever got through a whole one, but we'd read like a story or two a night, and then we'd move on to something else. But she loved them. She just loved having them. She just loved flipping through them. It, and they're timeless. They really are. Whether they're reprinting stories in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, today, whatever, they're really, truly timeless, and uh, they, they really do appeal to kids. Now, he mentioned uh, beaches. I got to mention uh, throughout the summer, I was going to the beach quite a bit this year, and I made sure to take pictures of me reading my digest at the beach and made sure to sneak in pictures of my feet uh, in the background just for Rob. So <laughs> That's Rob's kryptonite, everybody, by the way, as you can tell by the dead silence there. <laughs> Okay. Uh, next comment is from Ward Hill Terry. <laughs> Ward wrote in to say, uh, I don't have this digest, but I have most of the comics where the stories originated. He's talking again about the years of best comic stories from 1985. Uh, DC was publishing some really great comics in 1984 and 1985. They had to publish a separate digest for the best superhero team-up stories that year, which explains the lack of Teen Titans, Legion, All-Star Squadron, Infinity, Inc., and Justice League stories. You know, until he mentioned that, I didn't even realize they did two best-of digests in 1985. One being team-ups, one being best comic story. So now I'm going to have to track down that best of uh, team-ups story uh, digest and read that because I looked at the contents. It looks really good. I wish they had done a uh, digest of the All-Star Squadron. I mean I would have bought it anyway even Oof. though I already bought the comic, but that would have been a fun collection. Uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous from a Girl blog says, well, usually I thank you, but for the name check, but sniff – Mine, Jimmy McGlinchey wasn't told he couldn't enter the contest. Get in there, my son. If I was allowed to enter, my answer would be Glick, Smizzle, Glod, Delete, Globvlish, Flixus. Kidding, kidding. It's DC Blue Ribbon Digest number 14, UFO Invaders. The mm. fantastic Joe Kubert panic in the streets front cover to his gorgeous and strange back cover. This is winner printed all the way through like a stick of Blackpool rock. 12 short stories stunners provide a snapshot of the state of the American mind in the 50s and 60s as reflected in DC science fiction anthologies. Paranoia, wonderment, love, terror, all the emotions are right there on the page. Courtesy of such fine craftsmen as Gardner Fox, Carmen Infantino, Murphy Anderson, Otto Binder, John Broom, Sid Green, and France Edward Hearn. And all for 95 cents. Books like this are why aliens are visiting Earth. <laughs> 
Now, true story, uh, Martin, that Scottish bastard, he's not really Scottish. I just like to tease him. Anyway, uh, he wouldn't have even read that digest if he hadn't beat me, literally beat me in an eBay auction. He he actually beat me in an eBay auction for that book, you bastard. Uh, now, I do own a copy of it myself now, but I'll never forgive you, Martin, for, for scooping me on that. Uh, then we heard from someone who I love his online handle of Sir Print. This is great. <laughs> and he says, uh, naming my all-time favorite digest is easy. It's the digest that got me into the Legion. DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number one. I bought this brand new off the shelf from my local grocery store. I know next to nothing. I knew nothing next to nothing about the Legion prior, and that this was a perfect primer. It featured their first appearance, Universo, the Legion substitute heroes. The five. We, wait, we just someone else had this digest a few minutes ago, didn't they? Yeah. A few minutes ago. Yep, that's right. Legion of Super Substitute Heroes, The Fatal Five, and The Death of Pharaoh Lad. Spoilers! And on top of all that, the back cover consisted of a text piece containing a thumbnail sketch, civilian name, home planet, and powers of each member. After reading that one digest, I was familiar enough with, to pick up the monthly book and with no problem just keep going from that. Long live the Legion. Awesome, Serpent. I love that story. Then we heard from Gothos Mansion, who I'd never heard of till recently on our site. So I got to wonder if their name is uh, has to do with the digest we covered today. I, I love that name, Gothos Mansion. I uh, wrote in to say, even though I was a fairly regular digest buyer, I didn't often pick up the year's best compilations. Generally, everything in them I wanted to read, I bought new. Really, I only got the digest since it was the only place to read some of the DC's classic material at the time. I never was that enamored. I was never that enamored with the format. So, uh, well, he just made an enemy around there, I think. But as for my favorite digest, I have about three candidates if we're only counting DC, but I'll reveal those when you guys get to them. One of them was the JLA-JSA team-up that reprinted Len Wein's JLA number 100-102. Look at that. I mentioned that a while ago, which a lot of the posters seem to like. Um, but I seem to recall Rob and Shag didn't care for it. Uh, we're all like something different, though. Hmm. Um, I, how, what's, what's your feeling on the, uh, start, the that JLA 100-102? Oh, it's great. It's it's like okay. a it's an early trade paperback. It's reprinting three issues to form a collected story and it's got a great new wraparound cover, I believe by Ross Andrew of all oh, the characters. Geez. It's got like 500 of the heroes all jumping out at you coming from like the time stream. It's terrific. Can't go wrong with that. Yep. Wow, okay. All right. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin. Uh, he says, while I was in the States in July, because he, he lives in Denmark. He says, while I was in the United States in July, I checked several grocery stores in the St. Louis, Missouri, Dayton, Ohio, and Louisville, Kentucky area to see if I could get one of the digests, but I just couldn't see any. Bit of a bummer, really. I'm so sorry, Adam. That really sucks. Oh, that's a shame. I'm, I'm having trouble finding them now, too. For a while, Barnes & Noble had them regularly, and now they don't seem to be. So I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Corey Balanecki writes in, he says, I got a lot of these digests from my local mom and pop store, but the one I remember most is DC Special Blue Room Digest, volume one, number 14. I had to search that, which was the one that had the old sci-fi comic that title was UFO Invaders. There it is oh, again. wow. This digest expanded my horizons to see there were more than superheroes, Archie and Richie Rich. It was goofy fun, but as a kid, I was totally immersed in the stories. I do have other favorites, but that one is the one that stands out the most for me. Corey and uh, Martin, we've got a love match here. Going to have to put this on the docket again soon. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, all right. And then we heard from the one, 108th Sage, wrote in to say, so I'm a huge fan of superheroes. But even though I was born in 1975, I have zero memory of seeing any superhero digest growing up. I remember seeing lots of Archie digests, but never giving them a second glance. Only one digest ever really connected with me. I'm in a permanent attachment type of way, which is Richie Rich Vacation Digest number eight from 1982. You know, if I remember right, Rob, isn't that the reprint of your uh, Poconos? Uh, visits uh, over the summer? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes. 
He goes, uh, I'm betting I got this one as a gift, but I can't say for sure because I only have strong memories about one story in it, and I'm not even sure of the name. Something like Land Boat. The conceit behind the story was that a mad professor character invented a substance that allowed objects to treat solid matter as water and water as solid matter. And then he goes on to really talk pretty detailed about the story. And he finishes up by saying, oh, and yeah, I'm one of those people who doesn't have this digest, but I have the individual, so I'm going to finish this one slowly and work my way through the stories, rereading them and listening as he goes on. And of course, again, he's talking about year's best comic stories from 1985. Awesome. Thank you, 108th Sage. Did Harvey ever do any sad sack digests? I don't think they did. Not to my knowledge. I don't believe so. I certainly haven't come across any in my hunt. We'd have covered uh, them in number one of the show, episode one, uh, we, if you'd done we, that. Would have been every episode. Duh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Lee Asif, uh, aka that brown coat on Twitter, he says, "Thanks to this podcast, I'm reacquiring most of my old digests and racing to get the ones I missed, especially ones I'm hoping y'all are planning to do. Matter of fact, as I'm attempting to figure out the future shows that y'all are planning, may I offer a possible suggestion. With Dark Mansions being the Halloween edition, would y'all boy get with the y'all consider taking a wee bit more time to possibly quadruple up?" Okay, Lee, calm down. And also cover the House of Mystery issue and both of the ghost issues for the month of October. Truly would be an all hell's extravaganza. Okay, yeah, I'll do 77 hours of podcasting about Digest, Lee. <laughs> you know what? There's absolutely no reason why we couldn't do that for next year. Absolutely. Because uh, I, I do want to read the Ghost Digest, actually. And the House of Mystery one, I've read one of those stories for uh, one of Ryan's shows as well. So, yeah, I, I think maybe next year we could look at that and doing those two maybe. We'll have to see. So come back and check back next year. But I promise we'll have lots of episodes between now and then. We're not going to do that seven-month sabbatical or whatever we did for a while there last time. <laughs> Then we heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti. He's a cop on the edge, folks. Uh, over the Two True Freaks podcast network has shows like Earth Destruction, Directed Podcast, and many more. Luke says, uh, my favorite digest is DC Special Series number 18, which is Sergeant Rock's Prize Battle Tales. Cover dated in November 1979, this digest is a wonderful cross-section uh, of the line with stories featuring Rock, Enemy Ace, Unknown Soldier, The Weird War, and several smaller backups which were common across the line at the time. In addition to featuring many of the main war leads, it also had a great representation from the stable of war artists, including Joe Kubert, Russ Heath, who had recently passed away, Alex Toth, Jack Abel, Mort Drucker, Ross Andrew, and Jack Sparling. Even in the smaller format, the art looks incredible. It also has a wonderful new cover by Kubert showing Rock and Easy about to be overrun by a Panzer... I can't say this. Uh, it's the Panzer Tiger, uh, tiger uh, uh, of uh, Tank. Uh, and he goes, just great war comic stuff from top to bottom. You know, Luke, your comment actually inspired me. I dug out. I, I don't have that exact uh, Sergeant Rock Prize Battle Tales. I have a different one. I think it's issue number seven of one of the digests. I'd get confused. But anyway, I have a Sergeant Rock Prize Battle Tales. I dug it out. It's very similar to the digest you described, how it's, it's got Rock. It's got the uh, the War that Time Forgot. It's got uh, Unknown Soldier, several different backups. And I'm reading it right now, and it is so freaking good. I'm loving it. Such a great collection of stories. And you're right. What a great cross-section of artists across DC. So good. Then we're from our buddy Mike Peacock from Justice's First Dawn podcast. Mike says, I was around when DG DC Digest would have been on the stands, but maybe they were never around where my parents shopped, or they just didn't want to spend their dollar or whatever the cents cost of their money on those comics. It wasn't until I decided to defy the rules of what was popular in the 1990s and start collecting comics that were of a higher page count with my allowance out of the back issue bins. And one day at the shop I used to frequent, uh, D&B Comics, they set up a shelf of a 
boatloads of classic DC Blue Ribbon Digest. And the very first one I bought remains my favorite digest, and I still own my original copy of DC Special Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Digest number 11, featuring, shockingly, reprints of JLA number 100 to 102. I'm telling you, that's a big winner with the people. Uh, an epic three-issue adventure with three complete teams and all sorts of crazy settings with a stunning Dick Dillon artwork. I think that I only spent a dollar for that digest, but it still provided me with years of enjoyment revisiting it. Actually, it may even still be my favorite way to reread that Seven Soldiers of Victory story. You know, given that Mike does a classic JLA podcast, that says a lot. Nice. Based on the letters we got, I would say, I think it's safe to assume that that DC Digest, reprinting JLA's 100-103, sold 4 million copies. (laughs) Those are factual numbers from Comicron, I think, right there. (laughs) It's like the the Jim Lee X-Men number one, and then that DC Digest. (laughs) Right, X-Force, and then that Digest. That's exactly right. I think you're right. Well, that's all the feedback, folks. So thank you for all your feedback. Thank you for your submissions for the contest. Now, Rob, we have, we have crawled through, through these submissions. We have, uh, using a special mathematical computation, we have figured out the winners. Rob, you want to – first, let's, t- let's tell people what the digests are that, are that, that could be won. Well, there's two prize packages. The one prize package is the Archie Digest, which compile seven different Archie Digests, Archie Double Digest, World of Archie Double Digest, uh, actually two of those, Betty and Veronica Comics Double Digest, Betty and Veronica Friends Comics Digest, a Betty and Veronica Friends Jumbo Digest, and an Archie's Funhouse Jumbo Comics Digest. Seven books totaling over 1,000 pages of uh, wow. Riverdale fun. And uh, these are the classic Archies. There's no murder or anything else going on in there like you see on the TV. <laughs> so uh, that's what you're getting. Seven Archie Digests titling over 1,000 pages. Wow. Now, the second prize pack, again, a huge thanks go out to Rob Lance with Comic Connection in Oakville, Ontario. Uh, includes a – I'm not going to go into the, the, the details that Rob did here because there's a lot here. There's a Sonic the Hedgehog digest. There's Marvel's recent uh, Thor digest that you could have found in the grocery store recently. The Best of DC JLA in, uh, initiation issue, the one we covered a couple episodes ago. And then there's these several others that are they're, – they're the smaller trade paperback size that Marvel published. They're, they call them digests. So it's, it's not a true digest like from the DC. Style, but they're still digest size and they're great reads. Uh, it includes Fantastic Four Volume 3, a, a, a volume called Thor and Hulk, Spider Girl Volume 12, Ariana Volume 1 from uh, Dark Horse. There's a Star Wars Clone Wars Adventures Volume 8, and then a Judge Dread Luna 1 digest as well. Hell of a great collection. Just so, so, so cool. So um, those, those are the prize packs, Rob. Uh, we picked from the comments here on the site. So who are the winners? Winners are. Ted Kilvington and Sean Myers. Woo! Picked Congrats. at random. We didn't. We didn't play favorites. We just we went through the submissions and we sort of just did blind picks. And so those are our winners. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. All the letters were great, but uh, special congratulations to Ted and Sean. Fantastic. Now, Ted and Sean, if you would write to us at our email address, which is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net, send us your mailing address. Uh, Be sure to include your social security number, your blood type, uh, your mother's maiden name, and the city you were born in. Okay, no, not none of that, really. Just your address would be fine. And we will get those prize packs out to you guys. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thanks, everybody, for entering. It was terrific reading all those stories, especially how much you all loved JLA number 100 through 102. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, next episode of Digest Cast. Well, folks, it's my pick. It's my turn. And it's going to be a secret. Terribly sorry. What? I'm not going to tell you. I know. Well, I, I, I have decided what the next 
one or two issues is going to be. However, it all depends on when we can get it recorded. The goal is to, believe it or not, have an episode out in November. I know that's a pretty aggressive for us. If we can get out in November, I know what we're going to cover. If we can't get it done in November, then I know what we're going to cover when we do it in December. So one or another, you're going to get either one episode in November or two episodes in November and December. And I don't want to say what I'm planning yet in case we miss the November deadline. But they're fun. They're classic DG, DC Digest, either one of them. So uh, definitely some classic DC Digest, and they're going to be super fun. And you know what we'll do is when we figure out the recording schedule, we will announce it on social media in advance. So you will know before it airs what the what the digest is going to be. We promise, folks. It's plop, everybody. It's plop. <laughs> Rob, I didn't want to spoil it. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, Rob, tell the folks at home where they can leave feedback so they can hear, hear their name on the next episode in the feedback section. Uh, you go to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Awesome. You can also leave us an, a review on iTunes. Those are always very, very appreciated. We sincerely appreciate it. Or you can contact us on Twitter at DigestCast, which is uh, where Rob keeps uh, keeps a vigil, ever vigilant for any <laughs> Digest discussion, and he refuses to give me the password, so don't worry. You won't be communicating <laughs> with me. You'll only be communicating with Rob. That's going to do it for this one episode, everyone. And please remember, big things come in small packages. He lives in a strange world, a world of vampires, werewolves, and dark shadows. Now the world of dark shadows is yours in a strange new game by Milton Bradley, the Barnabas Collins Dark Shadows game. Each player spins, then selects bones from the coffin. But watch out for the dreaded stake. You struggle to complete a skeleton. A skeleton that glows in the dark. If you win, the curse of the vampire is yours. Mm-hmm. You win the game, you get a set of Barnabas fangs. Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. And the Barnabas Collins game is the scariest. So get it.